through the story and the life of the historical Old Testament biblical figure by the name of David. You all know who David is at this point? For those, all right, most of you, you got this. We have been looking at the life of David truly in an uncensored format. We know David, for those of us that grew up in church, Sunday school, or heard stories about him as the giant slayer, the shepherd boy, maybe the musician, maybe the king. And we think of all these great facets of who this man was, but we've got to stop and recognize he is a human being. And it was not because of this man's stellar record, not because of his credentials, not because of his looks, not because of his abilities, that God said, you are my anointed king. It wasn't because of that. As we have seen week after week after week, it was all because of the humility of heart that David adopted time and time again. And as we've seen, it is nothing short of a humble heart that allows David to stay under the anointing of God, especially when we've seen him make screw up after screw up after screw up. He's done great things, and he's also done some stupid things so far. And today we're going to continue to look at his life in this uncensored manner. Um, So that being said, the title of my message for you today is this, Faithful Living in Faithless Territory. How many of you, if you really think about this, can honestly relate to the reality of this title, where you are trying to remain faithful in your walk with God And yet day after day, you find yourself in an ever-transforming situation, circumstance of life, one step after another, that you're left wondering, God, when is this going to stop? When am I going to get a break? When is life going to stop sucker-punching me? And when am I just going to get this freedom that's in Jesus that everybody talks about. I don't have a good message for you today then if you're looking for an answer to that. No. Um, David, (coughs) excuse me. (coughs) Pastor Jason, I'm so sorry. Can I have my water right there? Just choked on a thing of phlegm that came out of nowhere. I'm about to die up here. (coughs) I'm not sick. I think it's laughing. Any of you get phlegmy when you laugh? That's a no. All right. <laughs> Only loser up here. Okay. Too bad. You're missing out. David, at this point in his life, as we've seen from the start of his potential childhood and his anointing, has been walking under this mantle of, at times, maybe not knowing and now probably knowing for sure that God has anointed him to be king. We don't know how old he was and when he was anointed. Many believe he was a young boy. It's possible that when he was anointed, he was a young boy, maybe 10 or 11. We don't know that for sure. That's when the anointing happened. That's when he had that calling placed upon his life by the prophet Samuel. And if you have ever had somebody great in your life speak something great over you, saying, you are going to be blank, Well, that's what happened at David's time as a young boy. Now, likely around five, maybe eight, maybe ten years ago, we don't know for sure, he was probably closer to a young man and in his late teens, maybe even pressing 20, and now he has the famous encounter with Goliath and that story happens. And then from that period and all that we've been going over since Pastor Chase preached on the story of Goliath a few weeks ago and what we are covering up until David's actual kingship, his official anointing in the eyes of the people as king, likely about 10 years have gone by. And I want you to think about that. If you have known anything about the story of David or you have read through the book of 1 Samuel in particular, you have seen while... Many good things have happened for David. He's been on the run for a lot of this time for stuff he didn't do. He's been unjustly terrorized by the King Saul, who is nothing short of a maniac because of his insecurity. 
all because King Saul is a man that did not have a humble heart. He was God's anointed, but because of the position and the condition of his heart, he was not to remain God's anointed as we've seen. Again, to be God's anointed person, God's anointed vessel, which every single one of us are by his Holy Spirit, does not hang, is not contingent upon your abilities, your faithfulness, your righteousness. There's nothing to do with that. God says, I'm going to give you that which you don't deserve, anointing. Now, if we want to walk in that anointing and walk in the favor of God, we need to have a humble heart, obey him. And listen, even when we make mistakes, repent. That's really this reality of what we're seeing between this contrast of King Saul and the future soon-to-be King David, the condition of their heart. So I don't want you walking out of here at any point throughout these weeks focusing on the heroics of David or even the shortcomings of David. I need you to focus on the condition of the heart in humanity. That's what God looks at. Not the external, the internal. Okay, so David at this point in the story where we're going to pick up, it has been and is now still on the run from King Saul. Now he finds himself in a pivotal moment where he needs to make a big decision. He keeps being delivered from the hand of Saul, and actually he has the opportunity to kill King Saul, but time and time again he's saying, may it never be that I touch the Lord's anointed. It is God's place to judge this man, not me. I better not take matters into my own hands because Lord knows where that's going to lead my pride, my arrogance, my ego, all that. Lord knows where it's going to lead the men that are following me, looking to me as an example. He is in God's hand, so he won't kill Saul even though he has the chance to do it, And we might be thinking, yeah, it's justifiable for all that Saul has put you through. So he won't kill him. And he continues to go on the run from him. And this is where we're going to pick up our story. And let me read for you. It's a short chapter. It's 1 Samuel chapter 27. It's 12 verses. I'm going to read the whole thing for you. And I want you to just lock in right now. And what we're going to do before we read scripture is what we've started the past few weeks We want to ready ourselves to receive from God. And I know we've had worship. I know we've had a little bit of fun. I know we've talked a little bit. But we need to ready our hearts and our minds. And I know we come in carrying all of the distractions and the baggage of life. So right now, what I want to ask you to do is I want you to uncross your legs. I want you to plant them both firmly on the ground right in front of you. And I want you to just bow your heads and I want you to close your eyes. And I just want you to take a moment of reflection and just quietly, I want you to call on God and say, God, clear my mind, soften my heart. Do that for a few moments and then I'll I'll lead us in prayer. Father, would we be ever hearing and ever understanding, ever seeing and ever perceiving? Would we hear your word? Would it penetrate deeply our hearts, our souls, and our minds? And would we bear fruit in accordance with your word carried out in our lives? Thank you. And in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel chapter 27 says this. David's on the run from Saul. Here's his next move. David thought to himself, one of these days, I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. Watch this. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, 
He no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live here. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gizarites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur in Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, watch what he did. He did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes. Then he returned to Achish. When Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, oh, against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of Jermiel or against the Negev of the Kenites. Did you see what he just did? We'll get to that. He did not leave a man or a woman alive to be brought to Gath for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Watch this. Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so obnoxious to his own people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. There is so much going on right here that I promise you by the end of today, you will not have any of your answers, questions answered. Um, no, I'm kidding. So here's the first thing of two major things that I want to point out that we're seeing so far in this first scene of the life of David. First is this, David is again using deception as a means of survival. You can cut this, slice this, skin this any way you want to. A lot of commentators, biblical scholars, and pastors are saying that David is using cunning and wit and street smarts, which he is. But you cannot appropriately divide cunning and deception as two different things. They are one in the same. Cunning is a form of deception in this matter. It might be very smart, but it's still deception. So I revisit the question that I asked you a few weeks ago. Is it okay for us to lie in certain circumstances? We're going to come back to that one. Um, let me just break down a little bit of what's happening here. David, once again, as we have already said, is faced with the obvious conundrum. I can't lay my hand on the Lord's anointed one, Saul, even though he's got to go. And because I can't lay my hand on him, I won't lay my hand on him. I got to keep fleeing for my life. And the way it's working out, the way I'm seeing things, I'm not going to last too much longer in the land of Judah, in our land, the Israelites' land. I can't go from this force to this force to this force. I feel like Saul's eventually going to catch up with me. I've got an idea, guys. Let's go to our enemy's camp. And so that's exactly what David and his men and their families did. They went to Gath and they encountered Achish. Achish, just little nerd moment, is not a name, it's a title, like Pharaoh of Egypt. It's kind of like king, or president, or doctor, pastor, whatever, it's a title. Anyway, that has nothing to do with the bearing on this, just thought you'd like to know that. Achish is who David and his men go to, and right off the bat, David leads with cunning, and he is stroking the ego of Achish, and he's letting him know, hey, I'm on the run from Saul. You've probably heard about this. I am no longer, uh, I'm now an enemy of the state, so you don't got to worry about me. I'm here now, and um, do you mind if I stay? And oh, and just so you know, I'll take whatever bare bone slum you got for me because I don't deserve to be in the kingdom of you mighty Achish. See how he's just piling it on, piling it on, piling it on. 
He's trying to cozy up to Achish to make himself seem more acceptable. Now, I want you to remember who David is to the Philistines and to this very king, Achish of the Philistines. This is the same man who, within the last decade, utterly defeated and humiliated the Philistines by defeating their prince of warriors, Goliath. It's the same guy. And, as later we will see, but I'm I'm not going to read it for you, the Philistines clearly know who David is because his renown is far spread. Remember the song that the women sang of Israel when David came back from the battle with Goliath? Saw his kid thousands, David his ten thousands. The commanders of the Philistine army knew that tune very well. He's like, David is on the number one hit list, and he has been for the last decade, so we don't want to be... David is not somebody that can hide who he is. And yet, for some reason, he thought The best thing I can do is live amongst the enemies. Now, let's come back to wisdom and cunning. In his mind, if I can convince the Philistines that I am not a threat and I am there, in fact, to support them, it is the safest place I can be because Saul is never going to dare transgress and and supersede the borders between Israel and the Philistine people. I'm safe here. I just got to get past this hump. Okay, that is logical. Honestly, that is really smart in my opinion. But in order for him to attain his goal, he's got to employ deception. Now, as we read all this, I want to point out to you, the author of this is not trying to psychoanalyze this situation like I'm doing. He's not trying to inform us as the readers as to whether David was right or wrong in his choice to be cunning and employ deception. He doesn't. In fact, it's actually quite clear that he is painting just an objective picture of what happened. And if you go back and you see some of the things that I highlighted, we see things like David thought it would be a good idea to go to the Philistines because Saul would no longer hurt him. What then happens immediately after he leaves? It says that Saul gave up on his pursuit of David. Authors telling us it worked out the way that David was hoping that it would. Then he figures, you know what, I'm going to go to King Achish and I'm going to tell him I don't need anything special, just give me Ziklag, and he butters him up, and that's exactly what happens. It works out in David's favor. And then David says, but here's the deal. Here's here's what I'm gleaning from this. David is still understanding of who his enemies are. He's in Philistine territory, and he decides, you know what? I'm going to secretly continue to raid these different smaller tribes that will then be used in our favor when we come to conquest the rest of this land. And the author recorded that not only the city of Ziklag, but these Negevs of, that's kind of like saying the southern part of Judah and Jeremiah and Goliath, these places are going to eventually be under the rule of the Israelites. So, man, David is having his cake and eating it too right now. He's, he's getting everything. And the author is, once again, not trying to tell us, is it right or is it wrong? He's just stating the facts of what happened. But I just want to keep asking you that question. Is it okay to use deception in this situation for David? Just think about that right now. I don't need you to answer it. I just need you to read the scripture. Listen, so he lies to Ahimelech, excuse me, Oh, yeah. let's go back and let me just recount for you what David does at this point, because deception seems to be this reoccurring characteristic of David. You go back in the past and he's on the run from Saul first, and what does, what happens? He encounters the priest of Nob, Ahimelech, 
And what does he do? He lies to Ahimelech and tells him that, oh, I'm on a secret mission from the king when in fact he was on the run from the king. Ahimelech is kind of confused, but he says, all right, I'm going to trust you, David, which inevitably leads to Ahimelech being put to death, murdered, cold blood by one of Saul's followers, but not just him, all of the priesthood at Nob. And Saul wipes them all out, all because of the deception of David. And as we looked at a few weeks ago, David wasn't lying out of a place of reverence for God. He was lying out of a place of trying to save his own skin. He was afraid for his life rather than revering God. Okay, and it led to people dying, David's deception. Go on, and this is not the first time that David has been in the enemy's camp within the last decade. He has stood before this very Achish before, and what was he doing? He was thinking, hey, in the past, it, it seems likely that he thought, I'll be safe here. It's probably not too far of a stretch to say that David had this thought process in the past. The Philistines is where I will be most safe. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, that whole thing. And he goes there like a dummy with the sword of Goliath. Don't know where he came up with that. And he's standing before them and he realizes, what have I gotten myself into? And now he has to feign insanity. He has to fake it. And it says he starts frothing at the mouth so they're spitting his beard and clawing at the gate and just acting like a madman. And it said that Achish looked and said, I don't need any more madmen amongst our midst, so get him out of here. So David already has put himself in this position, and he had to employ deception in order to get out of it. Here David is again amongst the same enemies employing deception, but now it's working in his favor. What has changed? You know, I, I, don't, I don't really know. That's for you to decide. I think something else that's interesting that the author is painting a picture for us here is once again, he's showing how dim-witted the Philistines were. Did you see the last thing that the Achish said concerning David, the Philistine leader, the Philistine king? He's, he's got it in his mind. David is so, he, he is a slight, he is a stain for the Israelites. They find him so obnoxious even to have his name mentioned that they don't want to have anything to do with him. And I can imagine in my head that that is very favorable. This great warrior who for nearly a, not quite a decade, but a, a number of years constantly was defeating the Philistines. It wasn't just Goliath, but he continually went out to war against the Philistines. And he was beating them cold every single time. Now the king is thinking, hey, I've got him. I've got their wonder boy. I've got everything I need. You see this whole picture of chapter 27 going on. David is deceiving this king and the Philistines and accruing wealth, defeating minor tribes, and he's lying about it, saying, oh, I'm, I'm killing my own people, the Israelites. I'm fighting them, so you don't have to worry about it but he's making sure there are no witnesses that are left to tell him. David is actually gaining the upper hand for himself and for his people. But meanwhile, the Philistine king thinks, oh, he's working for us. This is just an interesting picture that the author is painting that I put before you that I'm not, I need you to chew on. I need you to think about it. Because I, I don't want to overapply this to our lives like I talked about a few weeks ago. And, and here's a good point of kind of how to read my Bible and get the most out of it. When you're reading something like this, this is a historical narrative. It's telling a story. It's not trying to express, expressly teach you doctrine. That's right. Like, should I blank or should I blank? Is this a sin or is it not? And trying to determine how to live a righteous life or a godly life. Listen to me. Through historical narrative, you can clearly see doctrine and principles. But when you're reading this and you're trying to say, God, what do you want me to learn from this? Don't go through it and go, oh, I see David's lying a whole lot. Therefore, you know what? Lying's okay. Good doctrine. No, no. And then don't do the opposite. Don't say, therefore, oh, lying is always bad. And I know that's a, law, a big thing for me to say. But ultimately, the point is you got to be careful with how you read Scripture. You have to be careful with it. I paint this picture for you to say, take it. Dwell on it. 
Read on it. I'm just trying to illuminate the path for you to recognize what's going on here. And now what do I do with it? All right. I promise I'm not going to leave you hanging for the whole sermon. I am going to have stuff for you. So let's continue. Chapter 28. He goes on and it says this. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. The Philistines are going to war against the Israelites, David's own brother, his brothers and sisters, his own blood, his own people, that he is anointed to be the king of. Achish, the Philistine leader, says, you're coming with me to war against your own people. Here's David's response. David said, well then, you're going to see for yourself what your servant can do. That's a strong statement by David. He's like, those songs that you heard sung about me, that how I felled your boy Goliath, watch, I'm going to turn it around on my own people. Or at least that's what can be interpreted as David is saying. Achish replied, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. It's a big thing. That's a really big thing. And, and again, I'm not going to read it, but what goes on for the rest of that chapter immediately after is what I described before. The commanders of the Philistine army come before Achish and they hear Achish's plan to make David his bodyguard and have his men with him. And these guys are the actual smart ones, in my opinion. Because if we're to assume that David is continuing this, this line of deception, he's not actually going to kill his own brothers. He's going to turn on the Philistines. He's just getting in his cozy spot where now two can attack as one. Him and his mighty men behind while the Israelites are on the front and they get sandwiched. That's my mode of interpretation of how I choose to view this. But here's ultimately what I want to get the point across that you need to be aware of no matter what David actually would have done. Listen to me. The longer you live where you shouldn't be, the more likely you will be forced to compromise your calling. I, I don't know what David's mindset actually was. He might have been telling the truth. David might have been, he might have gone to the dark side in a sense. Like, I've been putting up with this for long enough. God hasn't come through for me, and he meant what he said. Personally, I don't think that was the case because we see David being deceptive, 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 and I think this is just another means of deception. I think he was going to turn on Achish, in my opinion, but ultimately, the bottom line was he was put in a situation that was going to call him to either fulfill or compromise his calling. And listen, we're all going to face that in life. It's inevitable. But I bring you back to the start of 1 Samuel chapter 27. Did David really have to be in the Philistine territory? In his mind, it was the best choice. But God had been delivering him time and time again. God had been coming through for him time and time again. In fact, David even said, I can snuff the cause of my pain out right now with my own hands. My men want the chance to kill Saul. I can take the kingship, but he refused to because he said God is in control and he's going to work this out. That's, that's great faith. So I can't help but personally question, did he really have to go into the Philistine territory? Personally, I don't know. Yes, it was very cunning, and in his logic, it was very smart if he could pull it off, which he did, but ultimately now he's in a situation a year and four months later where now he's got to ante up. He's got to put his money where his mouth is ultimately. And he's been telling Achish, yeah, I've been fighting the Israelites, lying to him the whole time. He's actually been fighting the residents of the land that are enemies of Israel. But now it's time. We're going against your people, David, and I need you at the forefront. It's a precarious situation that inevitably can lead David or any one of us to either stand tall in or falter from our calling and compromise it. So let me ask you, 
Not whether or not life is hard and you find yourself living in in faithless territory because you all are there. We're living in a fallen and in a broken world. There's no way to escape that. Some of us are more privileged with the jobs that we work. I don't have to face a secular reality as regularly as some of you as a pastor. I don't. I'm blessed that way right now because God chose to allow that. There are some of you that are because you need to put bread on the table daily in an environment that causes your faith to be put to the test day after day after day. So I'm not talking about that. God bless you and he's going to help you through that. I'm talking about situations that you don't need to be in that you have chosen to put yourselves into. You are compromising your calling. All right. So this is, this is what we see so far from the story of David. Now, as we have seen throughout this book, there has been this comparison and contrast. We're talking about David, but there have been a lot of figures that have been key figures in influencing David's life. And the biggest figure, as we have seen, and I've mentioned multiple times now, is Saul. Again and again and again, this guy seems to be the main antagonist standing in the way of David fulfilling his calling. And he never should have been. So, in true form and in true fashion, the author of 1 Samuel now kind of interrupts this situation with David. And he switches now to Saul and Saul's story and Saul's perspective on this. And so now, I want to jump to Saul and we're going to focus on him. And then we'll come back to David and see how the two really, really are a contrast to each other. So... Let me read for you 1 Samuel, just the first few verses of chapter 28, starting in the third verse. It says this, Now Samuel the prophet was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and the spiritists from the land. All right, just for fun, stop. This is like random. Jumps to Saul, throws in Samuel's dead, and then, soon, all right, Samuel's buried in his hometown and medium spiritists, witchcraft, all that. Saul expelled it from the land. How do these two go together? Just take note, okay? They're both together. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul, Saul saw, Saul saw, you know what I'm saying, right? When Saul saw the Philistine army, He was afraid and terror, terror filled his heart. Underline that word terror. He inquired of the Lord, but watch this. The Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So let me stop for a second and let me jump to this idea of these these protagonists that are now introduced into the story of these mediums that are mentioned. It said very specifically that Saul expelled from the entire nation of Israel mediums. So if you want to interpret that, you can apply that to anything that has to do with wizardry, witchcraft, necromancy, communicating with the dead, anything astrological, reading the stars, anything like that. It's a big deal. In fact, if you read in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which the Israelites had at this point, given to them by God on Mount Sinai through the prophet Moses, in five different occurrences throughout the first five books of the Bible, it expressly, expressly gives instruction in how to completely remove from your midst Anything that has to do with necromancy, sorcery, witchcraft, anything that has to do with that. So in other words, we need to see that within the Israelite faith, the Jewish faith at this point in time, God has been clear, get rid and have nothing to do with anything that has to do with witchcraft, sorcery, necromancy, all that. So what does the record show Saul did? He followed that and he did a good job. He expelled them at some point in his kingly leadership. Good job, Saul. Did good. Now, pause. Fast forward to the current situation of life that Saul is in. No longer the anointed of God. 
has been dejected and rejected by God, who is now further into his insecurity and fleshing out that insecurity through the fruit of disobedience and hostility and anger and rage. He's now being demonized by a demonic spirit, out for blood, unjustly, and he comes to this fork in the road. And the author of this book says, first, Samuel is dead. Who is Samuel to Saul? A prophet, right? And what does the prophet do? He prophesies. He declares the word of God. He's the mouthpiece. He foretells God's word. And the prophet was the person that the king especially, but everybody would go to to truly hear the word of God. Saul, in this moment, sees his enemies before him, and it says he's filled with terror. Interestingly enough, I told you to underline that word. That Hebrew word is a very unique word that is used at times throughout the Old Testament, but very specifically, it was the same word that was used to describe the events that transpired in the book of Exodus when the Israelites came to Mount Sinai and the presence of God came upon the mountain, Mount Sinai, and there was an earthquake and fire and billows of smoke that shook the ground. The literal translation of that word is quaked. Saul quaked with fear. It says terror, but he quaked with fear. He was quaking in his boots. He was shaking in his boots. That word is ascribed to a mountain that experiences the presence of God. It's showing, in a sense, that that mountain revered itself before God. Here is Saul, not being confronted by God, but being confronted by his enemies, by extension, the enemies of God. And rather than adopting the object of fear as God, saying, I fear God more than I fear any man, so I trust in God more than I trust in any circumstance or man that can deliver me from, it says he was filled with fear because of the Philistines. The author is really trying to give us this clear picture of Saul once again and how far he has fallen from obedience and subjugation to the one true God. He no longer reveres God. He reveres this earth and the pains and the fears and the natural forces of this world more than God who has the power to deliver him. Okay, so Saul in this quaking terror says, you know what? I do need God. I, I, I do need God. So I need an answer from him. Where does he first turn? He turns to Samuel, which to me is very ironic because the very last words that were spoken to Saul by the prophet Samuel before Samuel later on died was rejection. Saul saying to Samuel, what have I done? And Samuel confronts him after Saul refuses to follow the plan and the will of God to wipe out the Amalekites, and he tries to lie his way out of it, Samuel confronts him and says, Saul, enough. I'm tired of you lying about this. You were given the plan of God. You didn't follow through on the plan of God, and it's because you have been so little in thine own eyes. You are insecure. You cannot trust God, and you've got to constantly take matters into your own hands. You're removed. You are no longer going to be king, neither you nor your household. Those were the last words that were spoken. And for some reason, Saul says, I, 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 I need a word. I need a word. So let me go to Samuel. I mean, come on, man. Come on. All right. Let's just get there. How many of you are going to, you should, but how many of you are going to actually go to the people that are going to tell you when you're wrong, when you want, to tell, when you want them to tell you that you're not wrong? You're not going to do it. So again, I don't know what's going on in Saul's mind at this time. But now let me point out one other thing for you. Okay. Samuel's dead. He cannot go to Samuel. What is the next logical choice for a king at this time or the people of God to go to in order to get some help to discern the will of God? Prophets, right? Or, or, or priests, ministers. And, and I want you to think back. What had Saul done not too short 
prior to these circumstances. He killed them all. He killed every single one of the priests because he was so enraged and filled with wicked, unrighteous anger towards David that he acted impulsively and killed Ahimelech and all of the priests of Nob. Saul, listen to me, had removed every godly voice that could carry influence in his life because of impatience, anger, insecurity. And now I do want to put a point of application before you. Are you allowing godly voices to influence your life or are you doing everything you can to silence them? Are you snuffing them out? Are you getting rid of them? Are you, I guess literally, but more metaphorically, killing them? Because you don't like what they have to say. It's an interesting thing for us to notice. So, Saul has nothing godly and right to go towards because he's removed all of that from his life and he wants nothing to do with it. But he still wants the fruit that will come from the prophet's mouth. And so what is his next best idea? I'll go find a witch. And the witch will conjure up and raise Samuel from the dead and then I'll get to have my cake and eat it too. He's still trying to seek the voice of God, but through illegitimate avenues. How many of us do that? Oh, I feel God in this. Let's be straight up. We're, I'm not, I, like, if you have anything to do with astrology, horoscopes, witchcraft, tarot cards, Ouija board, I don't, this is real stuff. Very real spiritual stuff. There's a reason why God expressly forbade even entertaining the idea of it five different times in the Torah. Have nothing to do with it. Saul originally did a good thing. Now, I want to hear God's voice. I got an idea. Let me find a medium that can raise up God's prophet to give me the word of God. Talk about a messed up mind. And the means that we will go to in order to hear God's voice. Okay. So, Saul finds the witch of Endor. And what's interesting about the word medium in Hebrew literally describes not necessarily a person, but a place. It has to do with, it was a description of a pit that was described to be a portal to the underworld that mediums resided over kind of like gatekeepers and they had the power to conjure up spirits from that gate. And that's exactly what Saul was going to experience. He goes in disguise in the night with a few followers. They come to the witch of Endor, gives information. I want you to conjure up this old cloaked robe dude by the name of Samuel. Samuel comes up. The witch freaks out, realizing it's Saul. Like, what, what is going on? You're the dude who expelled us and passed the law that we couldn't be here. You tricked me. This is Samuel the prophet. What is going on? Saul's like, don't worry. I'm not going to hurt you. I just need to hear a word from my old brother, Sam. You want to know what Samuel said? Let me tell you what Samuel said specifically to Saul. In 1 Samuel 28, in the 16th verse, Samuel says this, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and became your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. It's going back to 1 Samuel 15. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath, watch this, against the Amalekites. you got to underline that. The Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. What is Samuel? He's a ghost, essentially. He's dead. Saul, you and your family, dead. This time tomorrow, you're dead. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. I just, I need you to stop and, and see what just happened here. Saul got what he wanted, but it was not the message that he probably was looking for. It's kind of ironic the way God works. I love this God. I, I feel like God is, I know God is in control of all of this. And he's like, hey, Sam, Samuel, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
raises up through the portal of the medium. He's like, tell him. Tell him nothing has changed. He was hoping to get a word from you that would change his circumstances, and I want to hear, I want him to hear it from your mouth. My word stays the same. And it's because of your disobedient heart. So Saul got what he wanted, even if it wasn't what he thought he really wanted. All right, why is this here? This is smack dab in the middle of the story of David. It has David's side of what he's dealing with as the Philistines are saying, we're going to war against the uh, Israelites and you're coming with us. And now it jumps to Saul and Saul sees the Philistines coming to war and they're both stationed on either sides with a valley in between them. And now Saul is quaking in his boots because he's more afraid of his enemies rather than trusting his God, something he has long since forgotten how to do goes to the witch of Endor, hoping to seek a favorable word, doesn't get it, in fact, is told he's going to die, and now it comes back to David. And this is now where I want to transition and, and, and say, what is David going to do if we go back to his story? He's told by the king, you're going to do this. And he's going to have a compromising decision to make. But this is where I think God is so good. Because I really believe God orchestrated David's deliverance, if I can put it that way. God lays it on the minds of the leaders, whether it's just logical. Uh, I, again, I think God's hand is in this. And the leaders have the common sense to say, we shouldn't trust David. Send him away. Achish goes to David. David, I don't know what to tell you. I believe you, but I can't get my war council to trust you. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to Ziklag, and I want you to wait further instructions until we're finished. And this is where David, in his story, picks up. David and his men, they go back to Ziklag. And what happens? They find that their home for the last year and four months has been ransacked, has been raided, and has been burned to the ground with all of their wives and their children, their possessions, their cattle, their clothes, everything that they had stolen. Hmm. Interesting. I can't help but see, once again, something here. If David really was fully following the will of God by being in the Philistine camp, why would this happen? Why? Again, I, I, I don't know that for you fully, but I point this out to you as well. If God's hand was really upon him in this whole situation, in other words, that God is the one who divinely orchestrated that David should go to the Philistine encampment, why would he allow Ziklag to be burnt to the ground and his family carried off? I don't know, but this is where I really want you to see that God still intervenes regardless of whether or not the decisions we made were compromising or not. So, so let's continue in this story. It says that when they get to the camp, David's men are so upset that they actually conspire a mutiny to stone him. They're weeping, they're wailing, David's distraught by this whole thing, and now he has his own men want to put him to death. Here's what 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 6 through 7 say. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters, but David found strength in the Lord. David found strength in the Lord his God. And then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him. That's not the first time that David has done this with this very same man. Who is this man? The son of Ahimelech, the very man who saw killed. He's the only survivor of the priests of Nob. David, when confronted with this man earlier after his escape from Nob, admitted culpability and said, it's because of me that saw. So in other words, oh, he, you, you can come and be with me. That bad man saw. You don't have to worry about him anymore. I'm going to watch out for you. No, he looked at him and he said, I want you to know something. I am equally as guilty as Saul, who was the perpetrator who put the priests of Nob, including your father, to death. It's because of me and my deception that you and your family had to go through this. That's humility. That's not giving in. That's not compromise. That's saying, I am wrong. That's right. 
But you know what? I trust God and he's in control of all of this. So let's seek his will. And that's what happened at Keilah earlier on when David needed the discernment of God, when Saul and the armies were surrounding them. And he says, I don't know what to do. Ah, you know what? I'm going to ask God. Hey, bring the ephod. That was the ceremonial clothing that the high priest wore when he would go to seek the will of God on behalf of the Israelite people. David, in true form and in true fashion, in contrast to who? Saul is seeking the will of God in an appropriate manner. I don't know what you can come up with, but David could have done something to get rid of this son of Ahimelech, the other priest. Maybe he could have thought in his mind, hey, this dude is going to be a witness against me for all of my life and a sore on my side because I got him and all the other priests killed by lying. I don't know. Maybe you can come up with something like that. Bottom line is he didn't. He admitted his mistake and he gave him sanctuary and he recognizes this man's anointing to help him seek the will of God. And he says, bring the ephod. We are in a precarious situation and we need the Lord's help. Unlike Saul, David goes about seeking the will of God the right way with a right heart. There's another comparison. So he asks, hey God, should I seek our captors who raided Ziklag? And God says, yes. So David and his men set out, and as they're on their way, they find this young slave boy who is an Egyptian by heritage. And he's near death. He hasn't, he's gone without food and water for days, and they just get him just enough back to health, and they say, tell us what happened. And he says to David, I am the slave of the Amalekites. And me and my master and his party just went on a raiding party and we went to this city this city and ziklag oh the very place that was david and his men's home that they're out to pursue the perpetrators for oh you don't say well funny running into you here little guy hey come here let me ask you um do you know where your master is you know i sure would like to talk with him Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Just promise you won't hurt me. Promise that you'll protect me. No problem. And the story goes on and it reads that David and his men met up with the Amalekites. It's a word that we've been seeing time and time again throughout these chapters. And they utterly wiped them out. Some of them got away, but David did not allow any that came under his sword to be spared. And the Bible is very specific that not one of their wives or the men's children or their possessions were lost. They gained everything back to the last cent. This is so powerful. David seeks the will of God rather than employing deception like he has in the past. And God delivers his enemies into his hands and he delivers all of David's possessions and his families untouched, unsullied. Now, now here's where the story really culminates and we think it's over. David and his men are going through, they're taking inventory of everything, they got everything. Now, what we didn't know that the author makes clear is that 200 men of David's men were utterly exhausted from their journey or, or whatever it might have been, and they could not go with them to, to jump on the Amalekites and defeat them, so they stayed behind. Now, they're on their way back to meet up with the rest of these men that were waiting, exhausted, and the men that did fight are coming up with this plan and this idea saying, hey, those lazy, slothful guys didn't go to battle with us, so you know what? They're not going to get anything extra. We'll give them their wives and their kids back, but you know what? They're not going to get any of the plunder, any of that, because they didn't go to war with us. They don't deserve it. Now, I want you to hear what David says when he is confronted with this scheme of his men. David says, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. 
1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul is going to war against these very same people, the Amalekites. God through the prophet Samuel said, Samuel, uh, God through Samuel said to Saul, Saul, you are to utterly wipe out the Amalekites and you are not to take any dime of their possessions, their possessions. Fast forward to, and then what does Saul do? Saul doesn't listen. He decides, you know what? I'll kill most of them, but I'm going to save the king because I want to make a public example of him. And then the choicest cattle and the choice, oh, we don't want to put that to waste. You know, we're going to use that. And, and, and then when Samuel comes and confronts him, what does he say? Oh, we're using it for God. Oh, and, 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 and Samuel, my men, they had the idea that we ought to keep this. So I thought it would be a good idea to listen to my men. Fast forward to David. Same people, slightly different situation. They're taking back what the enemy stole from them. They're going to them. He seeks God's will. He follows God's will. Now they're on their way back from victory. And David's men are actually, whether Saul was lying in the past or not, David's men are actually doing what Saul said the men were doing. Oh, they thought it would be a good idea to do this. David, like Saul, is confronted with the need to put his men in their place. And what does he say? This isn't ours. This belongs to God. We have no right to take matters into our own hands and devise a plan as to whether or not we are righteous in our decision to withhold from the rest of our men that which God has ordained, that which is God's. So this is, this is really ultimately the bottom line of, of what we see about David so far. It kind of, this is the end. There's one more chapter that we're not going to read that talks about Saul's death fulfilled, as he just heard from the witch of Endor, by the hands of none other than an Amalekite. He was against the Philistines, but an Amalekite killed him. So, but that, we're not going to read that. Here's the bottom line of what we see about David. Even in faithless territory, even when you are in a situation that you shouldn't be, that maybe you put yourself in, God can use what little faith you have to bring your enemies down. Let me read for you one more scripture. It's from the New Testament. It's in Matthew chapter 17 and in the 14th verse. Jesus was just coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And while he was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, the rest of his disciples are trying to continue to minister and they're having a real problem with this demon-possessed boy that the Father brings to him. And they're doing everything that Jesus has taught them and they just cannot get the boy to be delivered. Jesus comes down and here's where we pick up. When they came down to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Once again, Jesus, not very gracious in his response, cries out, You unbelieving and perverse generation! That ain't the halo rosy red Jesus that you imagine, right? How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. And then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, because you have so little faith. This is ironic because look at what he says next. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. This is profound here because it almost doesn't make sense. It sounds like Jesus is contradicting himself. He says you have too little faith. But if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, and if you've ever seen a mustard seed, it's like a, it's like a, a piece of sand. It's so small. Jesus, he's almost speaking again here in a paradox, like... I have too little faith, but you're saying if I have the smallest, tiniest little bit of faith that I could possibly imagine conceivable, then I could say to a mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea and it'll work out? Jesus is saying the object of your faith is misplaced. 
your faith is not in Jesus. Because if your faith is in me, in God, not yourself, not your ability to overcome these circumstances, not in what the Father is going to think about you, whether you're able to drive the demon out of the boy or not, not what the crowds think about you. If your faith is in Jesus, it takes nothing bigger than a mustard seed to be able to say to a mountain, Mountains like in Exodus that quaked before the presence of God. If you have faith in God, you're going to have that power that causes mountains to quake and mountains to move. That's the faith that David had. That's what we see. So you read 1 Samuel chapter 27. Was his deception righteous? I don't know. But what I can glean from the story is regardless of whether David was right or wrong he was in a compromising situation and he had time and time again adversity come against him and what does he decide to do that causes him to continue to be God's anointed king and the greatest king that Israel has ever seen the one that is referred to to be like the Messiah that is to come what made him so special the humility of his heart not a perfect man, had great, great, great victories and great downfalls, not a perfect man, but a humble man, a repentful man. Can I invite you to stand with me on your feet here this morning? And I, I don't fully know what, what exactly it is that you might be sitting here experiencing as you hear this word. Maybe certain aspects of it really, really hit home in your heart. Maybe you are feeling a lot like David in this moment. Maybe you are very smart. And maybe you have the ability to work out most situations that you find yourself in that are unfavorable towards you. And you're working everything out. And it's going in your favor. But inevitably, you are coming to roadblock after roadblock after roadblock that no amount of wit or deception, for that matter, can help you overcome. And you're wondering, what do I do now? I'm compromised. I think the word that you need to be dwelling on right now is Bring the ephod. In other words, you need to be putting yourself in a position of humility to say, God, I'm going to seek your will. And listen, I'm going to seek it your way. Don't be Saul. Don't think that because God is silent that you need to go to illegitimate means in order to hear the voice of God. I don't know who this is for, but I'm just going to say it, and this sounds so far out there. Do not think that you need to go to drugs to hear the voice of God. I don't know, but somebody needed to hear that, where you are now convincing yourself that I can hear God through drugs. Stop it. That is a witch of Endor moment. Stop it. You seek God the way that God has empowered you to be able to hear his voice through the Holy Spirit given through the promise of Jesus to those that simply are humble in their hearts. You know, I, I, again, I, do, I don't know exactly what it is that you needed to hear. That's not my place. I just hope that whatever word you received today is a word that you will allow to work itself in you and bear fruit in accordance with the word of God. Bear fruit, men and women of God. Bear fruit in accordance with his word. Let me pray for you in this moment. Mighty God. Powerful God. Unmatched God. God that anoints, God that delivers, God that raises, God that sets free, God that liberates, God that silences the enemy, God that shuts the mouths of lions, 
God that preserves the anointed one in the midst of faithless territory, that God, I call on you. And I say, God, would you meet your people right where they are? Show them who you are, God. Open their eyes to see you. Father, I pray that they would allow your word to penetrate their hearts deeply, deeply. I pray that they wouldn't leave here trying to go on to the next thing. I pray that they wouldn't say, okay, that was great. Now I need to hear another word of God or, or whatever it might be. I pray that we would just dwell and allow this word to saturate us. Jesus, you are so good. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Holy Spirit, God, would you continue to manifest yourself in the lives of your people. Let your anointing be poured out. Let men and women be set free in this place. Let them walk in the anointing of God. Not in the will of themselves, not in the will of man. Let them walk in your anointing. And let them be set free, I pray. Set lives free. Set minds free right now in Jesus' name. Because you can do all things, Jesus. You can do all things, Jesus. You've never lost a battle. You've never lost a battle. I know it, God. I know Jesus, the God whom I serve. Father, thank you. Thank you for another day of life, another day of breath, another day where we have an opportunity to grow closer to you. We seek your face, not my will, but yours be done. I want to invite you to say that with me in closing. If you're here and you want God's will to be done in your life, then repeat after me, not my will, but yours be done. Come on, one more time. Come on, one more time. I want you to really pray this to God right now. You're not reciting this. You are declaring this to God in heaven. You ready? Declare it to God right now. Not my will, but yours be done. Come on, give God praise in this place. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. God is so good. And all the time. God bless you. Hey, go with the Lord, all right?